All right, if you've got your Bibles, I want to ask you to retrieve them. I usually have notes. Sorry, tonight I don't. Uh, we actually already started. We're out at Sukkot. We're, I know it's not Sukkot yet. <laughs> That's actually uh, starts tomorrow night at sundown, but we're already Sukkoting. Uh, so we've already got our camper out there. And uh, I, didn't get, I didn't get home in time to get the notes printed up. So hopefully you have your Bibles tonight. We're in Acts chapter 2. We're continuing our study uh, in the book of Acts. I kept wanting to divide this chapter up because it's a lot of verses. It's 40-something, 40 45, I think, 47 verses. But it's just almost impossible to divide it up and do the passage justice. Everybody here should know that this is typically the passage where almost all Christian commentators will say uh, this is the defining moment and the birth of the church. Uh, we talked about that last week. Uh, it's, that's not really the truth, but we're just going to look at this. So I'm just going to march through this and hopefully we can, be, we can finish it. Uh, but there is a lot of information in here. So I'm reading this tonight out of the Scriptures version. Follow along with me with whatever version you have. And uh, don't you enjoy the sound of kids in the service? I do. No, I really do. It's the sound of life. And so I tell everybody when they bring in little kids, it really doesn't bother me. And so I hope it doesn't bother anybody else, but it, it doesn't bother me. Um, just think of it as us being at home in our living room. And there's a, it's already winter. Fire's going in the fireplace, you know. We got some chili cooking that make your mouth water yet. And freshly picked pecans all piled up, hallelujah. <laughs> and so um, that's, that's just where we are. So we're in Acts chapter 2. So <clears throat> verse 1, it says, And when the day of the Feast of Weeks had come, they were all with one mind in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from the heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and it settled on each of them. And they were all filled with the set-apart spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the spirit gave them to speak. Let me go ahead and read verse uh, 5 and 6. Now, in Jerusalem or Jerusalem, there were dwelling the Yehudim, the Jews, dedicated men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound came to be, the crowd came together and were confused because everyone heard them speaking in his own language. So this is where you get people referring to, you know, this Pentecostal event. Pentecost comes from the Greek for pente, or it's uh, 50 it's the Feast of, Tabra of Weeks, or in the Hebrew, it's Shavuot, okay? Uh, Sabbath, Shavuot, seven, Shavuot, it's the Feast of Weeks. And so it was to be 49 days plus one on that next day, which is where you get 50, which is where we get what we think of today as Pentecost. That's fine, it's no big deal. I just want you to understand uh, what this is. Now, if you're taking notes, although I didn't give you pen and paper, maybe we could find some, or you can write it down on your phone or tablet, whatever you're using. This appointed holiday um, is also known as uh, when God gave the Torah to his people at Mount Sinai. Did you know that? 
they've they've mapped this out, um, and the Jewish rabbis, the rabbis, uh, and and many even Christian scholars are positive that you can map this out and find that when by the time they arrived at Mount Sinai, and they prepare themselves, he said wash your clothes and everything for two days and three days because on the third day, I'm going to come to you. And that's when he comes and that's when he speaks and that's when they hear God speaking to them in their own language. I mean, they, they hear him in their mind or their heart or whatever and the mountain is on fire. There's the loud trumpet sound of the shofar and they, they hear the very Ten Commandments. And they say, this is what we will do. We're going to do this. Um, But here's what's fascinating. This feast of Shavuot or Pentecost is also believed to be, and this was uh, found before the time of Christ. So this isn't really just a late belief. This was very early on. They, they believed that this was also the day or, or during this time when King David died, which is going to be important because Peter is going to quote David and talk about David. Maybe that's why it was on his mind, okay? Uh, but it's very important to have those things as our background as we continue to look at this whole passage, to, to read it in context and understand what it is that God is really doing and what is he trying to teach us. So then <clears throat> that's, that's the background on the Feast of Shavuot, uh, the Feast of Weeks, or what we commonly know as Pentecost. And it says there that also they heard this sound of this wind and there were tongues of fire over the people and they were speaking but they, the people that were hearing them were speaking, they heard them in their own languages. We'll get into that in a second. How many of you here have heard that uh, where they were gathered was in the upper room? Well, it's, it's actually highly doubtful that that's where they were. Number one, uh, because it says that they were in this house uh, we already know that there was over 120 of his disciples that were there. Uh, and it's going to go right into them being in Jerusalem and being at the house. There's only one place where in Scripture it refers to the house, and the house is the house of God, uh, the temple. And they were there for the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost is one of the three pilgrimage feasts where the men were all required to go to Jerusalem at Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. So if you remember, when Yeshua ascends into heaven, right before he leaves, they're like, are you going to restore the kingdom? He goes, no, don't worry about that. We talked about that. He says, you're to go into Jerusalem, you're to wait. You'll be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the other ends to the end of the earth. Well, if you remember back when they went to Mount Sinai, God said, you need to wait, prepare yourself, 
because I'm going to come. And then when he came, he spoke the Torah to them. And they understood it. Jesus is telling them, you need to go and you need to wait and prepare yourself and pray. (laughs) And then what happens? The exact same thing happens. They hear this wind, this loud noise. It's not just a wind because it got everybody's attention. Anybody here hear a strong wind? Do you ever go, you know, oh my gosh, you know, it's a strong wind. You go, you look outside, you know, it's a wind. They didn't know really what that was. They heard this strong noise. It sounded like a wind. It says, as of a rushing mighty wind. They heard this loud and they heard, they understood that it came from heaven. They're like, what is this noise we're hearing? Um, They see this, and it says divided tongues of fire. No, I don't know what that was. It was flames of some kind. Maybe it looked like tongues or whatever of fire. And maybe that's exactly what it looked like. Could God do that? Of course he can. Is that weird? It's only weird to us because we haven't seen it. (laughs) Right? But then it says, um, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in these other languages. This is not talking about a prayer language of, you know, mama wants a Dahatsu, but daddy said he wanted to buy a Hyundai. It's, it's not one of those kinds of things. I'm just because I can't speak in those kinds of tongues, so that's the only way I know how to do it. Um, it's talking about people speaking in known languages of the day. We know that because of what's about to come. So then right here it says that in Jerusalem... There were these people there, these Jews that are dwelling there, these dedicated men, and they were from every nation under heaven. So what it's describing here is not talking about them living permanent. You you following that? It's talking about these are people that came there to dwell there, to spend the time there, that came to celebrate the Feast of Weeks. That's what it's telling us. And then it's going to get into all these different places where they were from. Is that okay? I want you, before I leave this thing about tongues of fire, there's a few passages I want to read. There's actually, I think, three or four. I've got, no, I've got more than that. Uh, Genesis 15, 7. It says, came to be when the sun went down and it was dark, that see a smoking oven, oven and a burning torch passed between the pieces. This is a, covenant between Abraham and God. And these are verses that describe God appearing like a fire. In Exodus 3, verses 2 through 6, it says, and the messenger of Yahovah appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. Okay. And he looked and saw the bush burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, let me turn aside now and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. And Yahweh saw uh, that he had turned aside to see, and Elohim called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moshe, or Moses. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not come near here. Take off your sandals, off your feet, for the place which you are standing is a set apart or holy ground. And he said, I am the Elohim of your father, the Elohim of Abraham, the Elohim of Yitzhak or Isaac, and the Elohim of Yaakov, Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at Elohim. That's the famous burning bush. But in there it talks about that 
God was showing himself as the flame, the fire. It's not like there was a bush burning and he kept it from consuming and he's just speaking through it. It says he was showing up as the flame. He was in the midst of it. Uh, in Exodus 13, 21 through 22, it says, And Yahovah went before them by day in a column of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a column of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. The column of cloud did not cease by day, nor did the column of fire by night before the people. Did you hear those details? It said, Yahovah went before them by day in a column of cloud to lead them by the way, and by night in a column of fire. He's saying that this is a representation or manifestation of God himself. It's not like God is here and then he's going, okay, I'm going to make it where they can see. And okay, I'm going to make it where they have this cloud to follow. He's saying that he is the cloud and he is the fire. Uh, It's absolutely amazing. Then you get to this um, Exodus 19, 18, where it says in Mount Sinai was in smoke, all of it, because Yahovah descended upon it in fire, it says. <clears throat> and its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace, and all the mountain trembled exceedingly. In Exodus 40, verse 38, it says, For the cloud of Yahovah was on the dwelling place by day, and fire was on it by night before the eyes of all the house of Israel in all their journeys. So it's like the the fire of God, the Shekinah glory of God. It's a physical manifestation of his actual presence. Um, Then if you go into the New Testament, you see where uh, John the Baptist tells them, indeed, I'm immersing you in water for repentance in Matthew 3, 11. He says, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to bear, Uh, He shall immerse you or baptize you in the Holy Spirit and in fire. It's talking about that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and in you, but also the very presence of God by fire is going to be all over you. I don't know about you, but when I think of that, I go right back to the book of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being in the midst of the fire and God being in there with them. And the ropes burn off of them, but when they come out, watch this, they don't smell like smoke. Why? It wasn't a normal flame. It was God. God was all around them. It's amazing, isn't it? So let's go to verse 7. In verse 7 in Acts uh, chapter 2, it says, And they were all amazed and marveled, saying to each other, Look, are not all these who speak Galilee? These are Galileans. They know where they're from. So this is the group that's been following Yeshua from the beginning and people that they've been gathering. We already know that there's over 120 or so that's there. And they realize these are Galileans. And they're going, something's wrong. Paul is from Roy City. He even looks like it, and he's talking fluent French. That's what they're about to say. They're like, whoa, I know Paul. This this doesn't happen, (laughs) right? It says, uh, and how do we hear each one in our own language 
in which we were born. So these are people that they haven't just recently moved there. They've been, they were born in these other countries. I don't have time to, my mind is like rabbit, rabbit, chase a rabbit. Like the, a lot of these are part of the 10 Northern tribes that have been scattered, but they know they're Jewish but they were born in these other countries and they speak those languages fluently with the accents. And they're, now they're back in Jerusalem and they're like, these are Galileans, but I'm hearing them speak the language I grew up in. What's wrong? Does that make sense? It says in verse nine, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Aram, Narayim. Uh, uh, another version will say Mesopotamia. Uh, both Yehuda or Jews, uh, those of Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, uh, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Mitzrayim, which would be Egypt, and parts of Libya around Cyrene, visitors of Rome, both Yehudim, both Jews, and converts to Judaism. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the great deeds of God, the great deeds of Elohim. And they were all amazed and were puzzled, saying to each other, what does this mean? This, is, this right here is amazing. It says, what does this mean? But others were mocking, saying they've been filled with sweet wine. They're drunk. Isn't this so typical? When God shows up, there's two types of responses. <clears throat> when God really shows up, those that really have a heart for God will be inquisitive and want to know what the truth is. Then there's the others that will just simply mock. There are some here that are like, so what does this mean? This is really weird. This, what does this mean? And there's others like, well, they're just drunk. Peter gets up and he's like, really? It's nine in the morning. <laughs> There's over 120 of us here. We're all drunk. And what about the flames of fire and the noise? And, and you're hearing them in your own language. So he's going to set them straight. But it's just interesting to note here that there's two types of responses that has happened back. It's happened since the beginning of time. It's happening today. Those that really want to know the truth will simply say what's happening and try to find out what the truth is. And especially when it comes to God and the scriptures. There are others that... Like they just mock it and blow it off. Um, verse 14 says, But Kepha, or Peter, stands up with the eleven. He lifted up his voice and he says to them, Men of Judah, men of Yehudah, and all those dwelling in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen closely to my words. Now, here's what you need to pay attention to. Peter is about to give two sermons or two speeches. Two. This first one, he's going to deal with this Pentecostal event, what's been no com commonly known as the Pentecostal event of uh, Acts chapter 2, birth of the church, blah, blah, blah. So he's going to deal with this tongues of fire, the language, the, the rushing wind, the noise, what they're seeing and what they're experiencing. This is what he's about to explain to them. Um, the next thing he's going to get to, then he's going to start explaining Yeshua. 
So there's two events that's about, he's about to try to explain this, but he's going to separate this into two separate things. And he starts off with men of Judea, Jews, if you will, and those of you dwelling in Jerusalem, you need to pay attention to what I'm about to say. Um, What I also want you to understand is that what Peter is about to give is actually an incredible summary statement of the theological views or the biblical understanding of the apostles of what has happened and what their mission is. Right here. Remember, once again, this is a historical document, right? So we have all the good, bad, and ugly in here. People lying, all kinds of stuff. We're going to run into all kinds of stuff in the book of Acts. It's not a doctrinal dissertation. But right here, Peter's giving a sermon, a couple of them really. Uh, and so we want to pay attention to what he's saying here because it's, it's an incredible statement. Then the rest of our New Testament are letters from some of these apostles telling people this is how you flesh out this stuff. Most of it's written by the Apostle Paul, who Peter says, you know, Paul's kind of hard to understand. Some of you here might also go, we know, Paul, sometimes your accent is a little hard to follow. <laughs> you know, but sometimes his, his statements are hard to understand. Anyway, so this is why this is important to nail this part down and us not forget this. So he says, listen closely to my words. Now, in verse 15 is where he's going to start this. For these men are not drunk, as you imagine, since it's only the third hour of the day, basically nine in the morning. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now, you'll find this quoted in Joel chapter 2. This is fascinating. So now he's going to quote it in verse 17. And it shall be in the last days, says Elohim, says God, that I shall pour out of my spirit on all flesh, And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And also on my male servants, servants and my female servants, I shall pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. And I shall show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and splendid day of Yahovah. And it shall be that everyone who calls upon the name of Yahovah shall be saved. Comma. So now what he's doing right here is he's explaining their confusion. And he quotes Joel which is fascinating because he says all spirit, yeah, all, that God's going to pour out his spirit on all people, right? He continues to read this. I want to challenge you to go back tonight and read all of Joel. Matter of fact, just read the book of Joel. It's not that long, uh, but read Joel chapter two. In Joel chapter two, he's describing the day of the Lord because he does quote that here. He says, because this is what's going to happen. What's going to happen? There's going to be darkness. The moon's going to be turned into blood uh, before the coming of the great and 
glorious day or splendid day of Yahovah. It's this day of judgment at the end of time, right? Question, has the moon been turned to blood and the, and the sun darkened? Like it's talking about at the great day of God, the day of vengeance, the day of Jacob's trouble. Has that happened yet? We all here would probably say no. You would not be following some Orthodox Christian teachers. They would say, well, yeah, it has. Remember it got dark when Jesus was on the cross? Um, let me just, I'm just going to read what I wrote. I can't tell you how many times when I'm studying for a sermon and I get so frustrated. And I pull up all my commentaries and I'm like, really? This one's pretty fascinating. I put, notice that the signs of the sun being darkened and the moon turned blood has not happened yet. This is for you. This is another text showing partial fulfillment of prophecies. Happens all the time, but there will be a future full fulfillment. There were other partial fulfillments uh, in the Old Testament, but Jesus, Yeshua, literally fulfilled Passover. He literally fulfilled first fruits. He literally fulfilled unleavened bread. And here is a literal fulfillment of Pentecost or Shavuot. The three that are left are trumpets, day of atonement, and tabernacles, which we're moving into tabernacles right now. But there were partial fulfillments. Does that make sense? That's okay. We also know that there's another exodus coming, kind of like the first exodus. Anyways, so I'm just giving you that here's a case in point where, and don't get too confused or let it rattle you a little bit. When you go back and read Joel chapter two and go, well, but all that hasn't happened yet. Or right here where Peter's quoting it, he's saying, you know, the moon's going to be turned to blood. The sun's going to go dark before the great and awesome day of of God. What hasn't happened yet? This was 2,000 years ago, and God's judgment being poured out on the earth hasn't happened yet. Right? We're still here, although there are some people that believe that it has. Yeah. Um, What I want you to see is that the only part that Peter is pointing out as a fulfillment is that of the Spirit being poured out on people. Before this time happened, God poured his spirit out on individuals and on individual prophets as necessary to preach, prophesy, or do whatever it was he was calling those individuals to do. Right? Even though people in the Old Testament were trusting in God for salvation, not understanding how the Messiah would do that, and they were saved. Talks about that in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, the great faith chapter. All these Old Testament saints, David being one of them, and all these other great saints of old that trusted God, and we have to believe that he's in heaven, right? Just like Abraham. But did Abraham know Yeshua? No. Was he seen that? Was he allowed to see that beforehand? Yeshua said he did. Uh, Did he understand all the ramifications? I'm not sure. Did all the other saints... All I know is that those that trusted in God by faith, they get into the kingdom. Those that trust in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by faith, they get into the kingdom. Does that make sense? Now we know that he did it through Yeshua, and we're supposed to call upon his name. 
<clears throat> so this is what Peter is pointing out, this idea of now, now that this has happened, when you come to faith in Christ, when you come to faith in Yeshua, you get the Holy Spirit. Paul talks about it in Ephesians. This is why I don't believe you can lose your salvation. Paul talks about it at length, talking about when we come to faith, we receive the Holy Spirit as God's earnest money on our inheritance. Meaning that if the contract gets broken, you get to what? You keep your earnest money. It's literally an accounting term he gives in the book of Ephesians. Which means you get to keep the Holy Spirit. So if you get to keep the Holy Spirit and you end up going to hell, hell's no longer hell because God's there with you. It just doesn't work. Does that make sense? But Peter quotes this whole thing. So you have to go, okay, so what's going on here? Let me just continue to read. He's dealing with their confusion of the signs of the tongues, the fire, the loud wind noise, and thinking that the people are drunk. This is what I constantly find in commentaries. Note, this is not me. I'm quoting out of a commentary today. Quote, however, the prophecies of Joel quoted in Acts 2 verses 19 and 20 were not fulfilled. Then I black, I bold texted this. The implication is that the remainder would be fulfilled, watch this, if Israel would repent. This aspect of, yeah, you're like, do I need to reread that since you don't have it in front of you? This is what he's saying. That the, 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 rest, the, the rest of the prophecies of Joel were not fulfilled, and the implication is that the remainder of Joel would be fulfilled if Israel would repent. This aspect of contingency is discussed more fully in the comments on Acts chapter 3, verses 19 through, 30 through 23. I'm not going to bore you with that. Y'all catch that? If, meaning God, and this is what you typically see, that God, and this is what they're saying, that God offered, the Yeshua offered the kingdom to the Jews before the cross, and they rejected it. Now they're being offered the kingdom post-resurrection to see if they will now receive it since they know that he's been raised. If they do receive it, then the rest of this is going to unfold. But now we know they didn't receive it. In other words, God had a contingency plan. He just, that's the word he used, contingency. Is that the God of the Bible? I'm asking y'all a question. No, he doesn't have a contingency plan. He has his plan. There's not a contingency plan. Well, you know what? If they do this, then I'll do that. But if they do this, then I'll do that. But if they do this, then I'll do that. God already knows what we're going to do. More than that, he's already been there. He's not limited by time and space. He's not guessing what we will do. He's already experienced it. It's crazy. This is from a 
prominent. <laughs> God, this obviously didn't happen. Therefore, the conclusion, watch this, is that since Israel as a whole did not repent, this is me now, there was slash is now necessarily the need for the church age. We no longer need the restoration of Israel because there is something new called the church. This is where you get all this stuff, folks. And people will say this and they pull it out of thin air. Thin air. And I'm like, wow. That's insane. It's a partial fulfillment of a prophecy that happens all the time in Scripture. Doesn't mean that God has a contingency plan, folks. He doesn't have a contingency plan. They're basically saying that since Israel, are, are you catching the ramifications of that? Maybe you need to back up again. Since Israel didn't repent, God's contingency plan is the church. This new thing called the church. Don't look at the guy behind the curtains, just focus on the smoke and mirrors. Wizard of Oz. Did it? I'm like, really? So now all those prophecies about the two houses of Israel being brought back together are now void and meaningless. Put them in the heat bin of history. That was God's prophecies, but you know what? He has a contingency plan. So you don't have to worry about that. And we're all going to get raptured out of here before the tribulation anyhow, so let's go out to eat. Serious. That's where all this junk comes from, out of thin air and quite honestly, out of hatred for the Jews. It's where it comes from. And I'm telling you, it's from the Antichrist. And it's caused Christians around the globe right now, two, was it two billion? To not know what their Bible says because of that kind of idiocy. I'm sorry. And these guys have letters this long in front of their name, you know. Uh, it's, people get so smart, they're just dumb. It's, it's, in, it's incredible. Sorry, didn't mean to chase that, but it, it just, <laughs> it makes me nuts. So then <clears throat> he goes on and it says, um, this is a quote right out of Joel. And he says, it shall be that everyone who calls upon the name of Yahovah shall be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. Everybody that calls upon and his name is Yahovah. It's not the Lord that confuses things. Shall be saved. Then he goes in verse 22. Now he's going to go to his second part of his statement. The first one was, they're not drunk. This is what's happening. He's, now he's pouring out his spirit on all people. Those that call upon the name of the Lord and they're saved, they now receive the Holy Spirit. You're seeing this happen. This, this isn't just Jeremiah or Daniel or Ezekiel or the Holy Spirit coming on David or somebody else or Samson or one of the judges or Moses or whatever. This is all those calling upon God and him literally pouring out his spirit on all of us. Wow. That happened. Yes, that started. And then that aspect of it, it is different. Now he's going to go to why this happened. 
men, in verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Now he's telling them again. First he said, all of you here, pay attention to what I'm saying. Now he's, gonna, he's prefacing it again. You got that? Okay, now then, pay close attention to what I'm about to say is what he's saying. That's that. Now I want to explain to you the why. Men of Israel, hear these words. Yeshua of Nazareth, a man of God, having been pointed out to you by mighty works and wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Why would he say that? They had to have been there at Pentecost. These are people devoted enough to travel out of country to worship God properly during one of the three pilgrimage feasts. It's now been 50 days since first fruits. So it's been over a month. They've gone back home, maybe taken care of some business, done a little harvesting, whatever, planting, doing that kind of stuff, and then they come back. Some of the more wealthy would even just go ahead and stay the whole time. Why travel back and forth? They didn't have planes and stuff, planes, trains, and automobiles. You know, they're walking in camels and that kind of stuff. So, <clears throat> but not everybody could afford to do that. So they, they either stayed or they went back home and they came back. And so Peter is actually assuming. And then he says this, this Jesus of Nazareth, whom God showed to be basically the Messiah through all these mighty deeds, you know this, meaning you saw all this. As you yourselves know, this one given up by the set purpose and foreknowledge of God, you killed on the cross or you impaled and put to death through the hands of lawless men. This is fascinating. I got to read you something else. It's just no commentary. Now I'm quoting the commentary. Just pay close attention to what, it, pay attention. When Peter referred to you, he meant the Jews. And by wicked men, he perhaps meant Gentiles. Because the word wicked, now pay attention to this because this is true. Because the word wicked means lawless. <laughs> Remember when we were told that there's going to be many that are going to say, Lord, Lord, we did great mighty things in your name. And he says, depart from me. Those of you who worked iniquity, it can also be translated those of you who worked lawlessness. For those of you who worked wickedness, it's antinomianism in Greek. Nomos is law, anti-law. It can also be translated as wickedness. So wickedness is anti-law. Meaning saying, I love God, but I'm not going to follow his law, which means you're walking in wickedness. Uh-oh, right? But I want you to, this is what he says, when Peter referred to the word you, he meant the Jews. But by wicked men, he perhaps meant Gentiles because the word wicked means lawlessness. 
anomon or antinomianism. Both Gentiles and Jews were implicated in Christ's death. Many times the apostles accused the Jews of crucifying Jesus. Then he gives these places where that is said in the book of Acts. It says, though the apostles also held the Gentiles culpable in his death. This is what I wrote. Did you notice the biased view against the Jews and then perhaps includes the Gentiles. When you read the word perhaps, you can't remove that from your memory. So he's saying here that when Peter said, you crucified him at the hands of wicked men, he put the word in there perhaps, not in your Bible, but if you were reading this in the commentary, then you're going to say, well, maybe it was the Gentiles, maybe not. Maybe he's just saying that the Jews were wicked. You can't get that out of your mind when you read it. Um, this slant is everywhere in current commentaries. It's everywhere. I see it all the time. It clouds the mind's ability to rightly read and understand the very words of God. It just messes with your head. I'm a pastor that's been trained in this. I got a degree, and I'm just telling you, it's everywhere. And when you read it and when you come across this stuff, it makes it so hard to read what the Scripture actually says unless you're really in tune to it. And then now it's like trigger points for me. But your normal person that hasn't gone through the stuff that we've been through, that I've been through, the pain to understand what the Bible actually says, you read that stuff and then you go, well, yeah, okay, we have those, those dirty Jews killed, killed Jesus. And that's what the early church called them, Christ killers. Um, <clears throat> anyways, he's, what I want you to see though here, what Peter is actually saying was, they were there. Some of the people that were there were probably the ones that literally yelled, crucify him and give us Barabbas. So he's saying, you were here, you saw this, you know these truths. You crucified him, but you crucified him at the hands of the lawless people. Who would that be? The Roman citizens, Gentiles. All of us caused his death, amen? So all of us are culpable in the death of our Messiah, not just the Jews. He goes on in verse 24 and he says, and God raised him up having loosed the pains of death because it was impossible that he could be held in its grips. This is where he starts to quote David out of the Psalms. For David says concerning him. Now this is where it's cool in the scriptures version, the way I'm going to read it here. Because this is the way it's read in the Hebrew text. If you read it in the ESV, New American Standard, it's real confusing. But in the, script, in the Hebrew text, this is what it would say. David says concerning him. I saw Yahovah before me continually. Because he is at my right hand in order that I should not be shaken. For this reason, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. And now my flesh shall also rest in expectation because you shall not leave my being in the grave, nor shall you give your kind one to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You shall fill me with your joy in your presence. <clears throat> now look at what he says. He's going to pause Men and brothers, let me speak, to, speak boldly to you of our ancestor David. So he's quote, he quoted David out of Psalms, I think it's Psalms 110. 
He, in, he interjects now himself saying, okay, now let me say something here about David. So he's quoting this that they, everybody had already believed that this was a messianic prophecy because it's really hard to do. You're like, what? David can't be talking about himself. This is what Peter's going to be saying. Men and brothers, let me speak boldly to you of our ancestor David. He died, and he was buried, and his tomb is with us today. They knew where it was. Being a prophet then and knowing that Elohim had sworn an oath to him of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, to raise up the Messiah to sit on his throne. Foreseeing this, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. So now he's saying, he's explaining that when David wrote this, he was looking forward to the Messiah. David is dead and buried and his bones are in a grave across town is what he's saying. He's not talking about himself. He's foreseeing this as a prophet and prophesying about the Messiah because God had promised that the Messiah would come through him, that there, his throne and his reign would be everlasting, basically through the Messiah. <clears throat> Verse 30, 31, it says, Foreseeing this, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah, that his being was neither left in the grave, nor did his flesh see corruption. Now he's going to quote it again. Elohim has raised up this, I mean, no, I'm sorry, this is him saying, Elohim, God has raised up this Yeshua of which we are all witnesses. So now what he's saying is this. He's going to tie this together, but then he's going to say something incredibly important. Everybody here that you've been hearing speaking in your language, and you people saw Yeshua crucified. Some of you were here crying out, crucifying him and give us Barabbas. The whole town was in an uproar when this happened at Passover, okay? <clears throat> and he's saying, God raised up this Yeshua and we are all collectively witnesses of that resurrection. So he's not saying, I saw him, take my word for it. What he's saying is, you just witnessed something miraculous, that should have taken you because they already knew, watch this, the Jewish people already believed that this is the commemoration of God giving his Torah at Mount Sinai. They already have that in their head. They go there and they see this and some are like, what's going on? Then there are others that are like, they're just drunk, whatever. They've already got this connection. They've already got a connection that this is the time when David died. So all this stuff is already in their mindset. Why they're there to worship at Pentecost, Shavuot. Peter gets up and he says, this is what happened. This is a fulfillment of Joel. Takes them right back to Mount Sinai. Takes them all the way to the end of time, this judgment. And he goes, and this Yeshua whom you crucified at the hands of all the lawless people were all culpable this Yeshua was raised from the dead, and all of us here collectively are witnesses to the fact that he was raised. So no one is going to say, well, that's not true. And as a matter of fact, we also know from the gospel accounts, he showed himself resurrected to over 500 at one time. It could have been some of those very people there that still hadn't believed yet. 
they're still trying to wrap their brain around it. They're like, I don't know, man, that's just weird. Okay, now they're there. Verse 33, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, which y'all just saw, he poured out this, which you now see and hear. This is, you're seeing, it's, it was still going on. And it says, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, watch this, now he's going to quote David again. And when you read it in the ESV, it says, the Lord said to my Lord, but that's not what it says in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, it says, Yeshua said to my master, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And this is the way Peter would have quoted it. He wouldn't have said, the Lord said to my Lord. He wouldn't have been speaking English anyhow. As a matter of fact, chances are he would have been saying this in Hebrew to these Jewish people. And it says, uh, this quote, yeah, this quote is from Psalm 110. And a lot of times, like if you're reading it in the ESV, it it might say, or if you've got a New American Standard in front of you, it'll say, the Lord said to my Lord. That's not what it says in the original Hebrew text. It says, Yeshua said to my Lord. So what's he talking about? I mean, it says, uh, Yahovah. Yahovah said to my Lord. Did I say Yeshua every time? (laughs) If you're listening to this on recording, sorry, man, I messed that up. Yahovah said to my Lord. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool for your feet. Uh, it's not saying, so, so what's happening here when David is quoting and when David is prophesying this, he's prophesying God the Father talking to God the Son, not talking to David. It's not God talking to David, it's God the Father talking to God the Son. That's why there's the distinction of Yahovah said to my Lord, sit here until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Then in verse 36, he says, therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made this Yeshua and he's going to remind them whom you impaled, whom you crucified, both master, both Lord, okay, and Messiah, the Messiah we've been looking for, that you were here when this happened last month. You saw all this. This is why when he made these comments, folks, it says that having heard this in verse 37, they were pierced to their heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, the emissaries, men, brothers, What do we need to do? It pierced them to their very heart. Everything else that they had seen, witnessed, when they saw Yeshua crucified and buried, he heard about the resurrection, everything else. I mean, that was going around everywhere. Some of them might, like I said, might have actually seen him, but then they could have thought they saw a trick, magic, whatever. Um. Now they come back. Now watch this. The difference here is now it's a reenactment of Mount Sinai and the giving of God's law written on our hearts. 
Now it's going to be written on their hearts. And they are physically experiencing the presence of God and this happening. And Peter makes the connection and he quotes a psalm that they had already been debating about and talking about for centuries that this had to have been a messianic prophecy. And he goes, this David, and he goes, is it okay if I talk about our ancestor, King David, that everybody thinks, you know, is, you know, the best that ever lived and all that, right? Uh, is, is it okay if I talk about him? Because look, he's dead. He's across town. Who was he talking about? He's talking about Yeshua. And you all guys saw this. You saw that he was crucified. We're witnesses to the fact that he resurrected, that he was resurrected. And our God has seated him at his right hand and you crucified him. Then they go, "Uh uh-oh. This is why it pierced them to their hearts. Verse 38, Peter says, because they asked, so what do we do? Peter says, repent and let each one of you be immersed or baptized in the name of Yeshua, Messiah, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of this set-apart spirit. For the promise is for you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as God, as many as Yahovah, our Elohim, shall call. And with many other words, he earnestly witnessed and urged them saying, be saved from this crooked generation. Then those indeed who gladly received his word were baptized and on that day about 3,000 beings were added to them. We've been over this before here, but in case you don't remember the whole Mount Sinai event, they hear the word of God, They all say we're going to do it. God says, Moses, come on up here. Moses goes up there and he goes, you've already got the book. I've given it to Aaron. Just follow what it says. I'm going up to get the word written and I'm going to come back. Behave yourselves. While he's up there, what do they do? They make the golden calf. They think their their go-between between God is dead. They need another go-between, so they make the golden calf. They come back. God's judgment falls on them, and you know how many died? About 3,000 souls. God's account, his ledger, will balance perfectly. They lost 3,000. I'm going to get 3,000 back. When I redo this, I'm going to call out personally 3,000. About 3,000, because he's not going to let he's not going to let his numbers fall one person short of what he desires. I just think that's absolutely awesome. Now watch this. It says, "And they were continuing steadfastly to the teachings of the apostles." That's amazing. You have to let that germinate just for a second. Jesus has been gone for 40, just not even 40 days yet, just a week, right? He was there with them for 40 days, and now it's the 50th day, so it's 10 days later. The Gospels haven't been written yet. Yeshua spent 40 days appearing to the apostles. We went over this, teaching them what? About the kingdom. Spent 40 days teaching them and reminding them and showing them from the Scriptures the issue of the kingdom. 
Ten days later, we have Pentecost. Spirit breaks out. People get saved. 3,000 people are saved. And it says, and they were continuing steadfastly in the teachings of the apostles. Why would they do that? Because these people that were coming to faith in Yeshua are now going, we need somebody to explain everything. When you came to understand that the Torah was still applicable, did you find yourself going into study overload? Just like, you know, purple smoke. I know, and I did, and still do to some degree. Uh, <clears throat> they were like, okay, so we're not saying that the Old Testament doesn't matter. We're saying it does matter. And what they were finding out was, you mean to tell me that Yeshua was the fulfillment of all of that? That we, what we've been looking for? And they're like, okay, so explain this to me. So that's what the apostles are teaching them and showing them. And it says they were devoting themselves daily to their teachings, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And fear came upon every being, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all those who, were, who believed were together and had all in common. They sold their possessions and property and divided them among all, as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the set-apart place. So where were they going? Constantly, almost every day. They were going to the temple, the holy place. They were not going to the upper room. They were going into the temple. I want to show you something here. It's absolutely fascinating. Most people are not aware of this. Um, they, were, they were still going into the set-apart place. They were going into the temple. <clears throat> Uh, and they were breaking bread from house to house. Now, here's the distinction. They were going to the temple for worship. They were doing this every day. They were going there witnessing. They were going there testifying about Yeshua. They were going back to their homes. They were breaking bread and having fellowship together. Uh, and they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. If you like to write in your Bible, you might want to underline that. Because I want to, I'm going to share something with you that most people are not very familiar with. They were finding favor with all the people. Who was finding favor with all the people? Who was the, who who the who here that we're talking about? The apostles and the, the new believers that were going into the temple. They were finding favor with all the people. Does that sound a little confusing? <clears throat> yes and no. I want to show you something. And it says, and God, the master, added to the assembly those who are being saved day by day. <clears throat> We're going to continue our study in the book of Acts. It's absolutely fascinating. What some people have estimated, by the time we get to the end of the book of Acts, some people believe that there might have been over 100,000 Jewish believers in Yeshua as the Messiah maybe upward to 200,000. There was a lot. And here's what most people don't realize. <clears throat> the real division between the Jews and this new sect, if you will, of Messianics, or Jewish believers in Yeshua, didn't really happen until about 130 CE. 
Here's what happened. They kept growing and growing and growing uh, in faith in Yeshua. Uh, we don't have time. There, we'll get there. Uh, Paul even goes into the temple uh, to prove that people were lying about him, telling people not to follow their traditions. So he goes into the temple and he pays for the sacrifices and stuff for these Nazarites. <clears throat> I think there was four of them. And he does his own as well. Why would they be allowed to go into the temple and do that kind of thing if there was already a division and they hated them and thought that they were heretics? Nobody asked that question. They allowed them to do that. Why? Because they also knew the, the Jewish population as a whole, it was the Judaizers that were trying to cause Paul problems. Who would be doing that? The devil. He's just stirring stuff up. But the Jewish population as a whole understood that's not what they were teaching. Ever. Ever did they teach that. They were never going around saying, the temple is done away with. We don't need the temple anymore. We don't need the sacrifices anymore. All that old stuff is gone. Now we've got this new religion in Jesus and we're going to call it Christianity. That was never the case. That didn't happen. There were at least tens of thousands. Some people think upward to 200. That's a lot. 200,000 believers in Yeshua by the time we get to the end of the book of Acts. Now, we all know that in, what, 70 AD, there was a revolt among the Jews against Rome again, and Jesus prophesied that the temple would be destroyed and not one stone left on itself, and all that happened in 70 AD. That's history, right? That's, that's a fact. And most people say, most people say, you see, God judged the Jews. There's, now more, there's no longer a temple. He's done away with them. Da, 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 da. They changed the name to Palestina, all that. Well, they didn't actually change the name until about 136 or so AD or CE. Why? Because the revolt that happened around 70 CE was the first revolt. Then there was a second revolt. And then there was a third revolt that happened around 130 CE. That revolt was led by a name called Simon Bar Kokhba. It's referred to as the Bar Kokhba Revolt. Did you know, you probably didn't because I didn't know, did you know that a lot of the believers in Yeshua stood arm in arm fighting against Rome with their Jewish brethren in those other revolts. They did. But you know what happened with the Bar Kokhba revolt? With the Bar Kokhba revolt, the Orthodox Jewish community declared Bar Kokhba the Messiah. Officially calling him the Messiah. And the believers in Yeshua said, no, uh-uh, Yeshua's the Messiah. 
resurrected, remember? We're not going to fight with you guys if you're claiming that he's the Messiah. So they quit. And then we're considered traitors, and they hated them for it. And that is when Israel was totally crushed, even, the, even on the Roman side, before you get too caught up, Rome suffered massive casualties. This was all-out war. This wasn't just guerrilla warfare. This was all-out war. Therefore, a short while, they literally developed an independent state in that area of Judea, Judea and Samaria. They recaptured that area from Rome. Caesar basically said, I've had enough of this and brought his full army to bear on them. And it cost them dearly, but they did finally crush them. And that is when they said, done. This is not even no longer, this is no longer Israel or Judea. It's Palestina. And they forcibly scattered them everywhere. And that is when the Orthodox Jewish community became, came to the conclusion that they hated these traitors. Hated them. What I want you to understand is that what was happening in, that, in the, this early church age that we're going to be reading about, it's not as clear as what Hollywood usually tells you of what was going on. Because <clears throat> these early believers were not teaching that the temple is now irrelevant. Paul was actually teaching just the opposite and was teaching that we've been grafted in, Gentiles, and no one was ever saved by doing those sacrifices. And he was telling everybody, if you're following Judaism to get saved, you've missed the point. It's what I've been preaching my whole Christian life, which is religion will send you straight to hell. A relationship with God will get you into heaven. You can call yourself a Christian all day long. Not going to make you one. You can have a Christian wedding. It's not going to give you a Christian marriage. Right? Isn't that what I told you guys? I mean, you can have a ceremony. Doesn't, believe, doesn't mean anything. I used to be a youth minister. I used to tell the kids all the time, look, you can sleep in a garage. It's not going to make you a car. It's really just that simple. Sounds crazy, but you need to try to wrap your head around this. You can go to church all day long. Not going to get you into heaven. You need to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, period. Now we understand his name's really Yeshua, the Messiah. But you need to have a personal relationship with him. This is what Paul was telling them. If you're following the traditions of Judaism or anything else and thinking that's going to get you saved, wrong. That's going to bring you death and destruction. What you need is a personal relationship. When you have the personal relationship, that doesn't mean you have a license to do whatever you want. We still have to walk according to his ways, the way he's told us. That's how we please him. And that's what they were telling them. And the more they did that, the more the Jewish people couldn't argue with it. They're like, well, he's not telling them to not do the sacrifices. I mean, we're hearing it from him. And we'll get to it later, but there's a point where Paul is arrested because it was told <laughs> that he brought a Gentile into the temple. 
So all this uproar comes up. What do you mean bringing an uncircumcised Gentile in here? So he's getting arrested. And so the way he deals with it, and they're going to flog him, and he goes, is it really okay to flog a Jewish, I mean, a, a Roman citizen? Because I'm also Roman. And they all go, oh my gosh. And then the way he finally gets everybody off of him, he goes, look, the reason they're mad at me is because I'm preaching the resurrection. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees don't. It's an easy way to remember it. That's why they're sad you see. It was told to me 30 years ago, but this, they don't believe in the resurrection. That's why they're sad. So the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees do. Paul was a Pharisee, and he tells them in this mixed crowd that's so mad at him because they think he brought in a, 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 an uncircumcised Gentile in the temple, which he didn't. And so that's what started this whole mess. And he's like, look, the reason they're mad at me is because I'm preaching about the resurrection. That's what they're mad about. And they're like, okay. So then they start fighting among themselves and the Romans are going to take him out. And they're going to, he's like, really? I'm Roman. They go, okay, let's just get him out of here. And then Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. Once he did that, they're like, okay, we're going to Rome. End of End of story. There's no recanting this either. You said you appealed to Caesar. You're a Roman citizen. We're going all the way to Rome. There's no, there's no backtracking. There's no nothing. So I know I'm getting way ahead of myself, but the point is there's all this stuff going on and there were thousands upon thousands of believers in Yeshua that were Jewish. They were still following their faith and they were even fighting alongside their Jewish brethren that weren't necessarily messianic, didn't really believe in Yeshua, but they did understand, watch this, the kingdom. And they did understand that when Yeshua comes back, he's going to restore the kingdom where? Not in America, not in France, not in Germany, not in Italy, not in Argentina, not in Iran, not in Iraq, not in Greece, but in the area we know as Judea, the area we know today as the land of Israel. And that's why they were fighting going, Rome doesn't need to be here. In other words, the early believers were not all pacifists. Don't know if that rocks your world too much or not, but remember when they arrested Jesus, Peter took a sword. And even before they left, they said, well, we got two. And Jesus goes, that's plenty. Right? Remember that? Uh, so they, they weren't all pacifists because they also understood this is a real battle. This is a real spiritual battle. It really does involve physical human beings. But it, we're talking about a kingdom and they're teaching on the kingdom and they're teaching about the restoration of the kingdom and that we are now bringing this in because God's kingdom is now here and he's doing it through us, and he's going to do it through everybody on the face of the earth that are part of his, because he's what? Restoring all the kingdoms of the earth under his reign, but he's also going to do it physically and specifically with the people of Israel. That's where the greater exodus thing comes in. They were understanding, this is where I'm getting with all they were understanding all this. They had had 40 days of him teaching them, and they're, they're devoting themselves to the apostles' teachings about what? The kingdom and how to flesh all this out, and then this is what's been going on, and that there could have been as many as 200,000 believers And the real reason is, is because there was at least that many 
of God's people that were at least willing to say, what is what does this truth what is what am i really seeing and what does this really mean because i want to know the truth then yes there were the others that would say they're just drunk whatever let's just go on in other words there were the others that would just say we just want our physical kingdom we don't really care about the religious aspect of it that was happening back then and it's happening today in israel there's a lot of people that are jewish that are not they're agnostic they don't even believe that there could be a god but they're still Jewish. Does all that make sense? I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be encouraged. God loves you very, very much. He's mapped out everything. His ledger will always balance. Um, He's very, very busy. uh, And we need to be people that would be willing to say, what is the truth? And I want to embrace that truth wherever it takes me. And as I was studying this, I ended my study thoughts with this aspect. You know, I, and I think I can safely say we, are just like these early Jewish believers, watch this, who their whole life were serving God through all these rituals. Some of them rabbinic. Yeshua shows up and goes, well, let me explain to you the other side of that. And they literally had their minds blown. But then they also became on fire for God and their love for Him just went deep. Their roots went deep. These are the people that willingly sang to God in the Colosseums while the lions were ripping them apart. These are the people that were singing to God when Nero was putting them on crosses, lining the highways for hundreds of miles and dipping them in tar and lighting them on fire alive, and they're singing to God while that's happening. That's how deeply they loved God because they came to understand, oh, so it's not just a religion and religious activity It's a personal relationship with the creator of the universe. And my lifestyle and my witness is a way to bring glory and honor to his name. Now that's different. You see the difference in that? I would say crazy people would sing to something that's just some blank, some some kind of nebulous religious activity and a hope without understanding, no, what you're actually doing is bringing glory and honor to a real king that loves you. And your days on this earth are nothing compared to eternity with him. So the only question is how we pass from this life to the next one. That's the only question. I mean, is it going to be old age? Is it going to be cancer? Is it going to be a car wreck? Is it going to be transformation in the sky? Are we going to walk through the whole tribulation period and make it to the other side? Will some of us die along the way? Maybe. Maybe. Will some of us die by the swords? It says some will. Uh, Some of us make it all the way. Does any of that even matter? No. 
What matters is as we're living our lives, glorifying our king. Wherever that takes us. To me, that changes everything. It changes the game. The mindset changes everything to where, oh, so then the only thing that matters is today, loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Loving you guys as I love myself. And doing that to bring glory and honor to the king. Great. What does tomorrow bring? Not my problem. (laughs) Not my problem, not my worry.